Well, thank you, worship team. Good to be reminded that this is our Father's world and not ours. And regardless of what we see and what annoys us or irritates us or causes us to conclude that we're headed for ruin, it is our Father's world. And as he said, or as Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And uh, we need to believe that God means all of this for good. Well, we talked last week about the Christ-like relationship between husbands and their wives. And if you weren't here, I'm sure that uh, you know, we can arrange a private session where you can learn about that. <laughs> But we will discuss this week the other relationships within the household of that time. Um, This includes parents and children and masters and slaves. And I trust that you had the opportunity this week to pray about your relationship in the household, including the relationship with your spouse, if you have one, with your children, if you have them, or with your parents, if you have them. And we can praise God that this institution of slavery that Paul talks about has been abolished in our country. But that relationship, as written about by Paul in this book of Colossians, will have some application to us today, and we will speak of it today. So thus far in the book of Colossians, though, we have talked about the joy of Jesus. And this book is all about the joy of Jesus. In the first part of the book, Paul offers a prayer of thanksgiving. He prays for the congregation earnestly that they might be increased in knowledge and wisdom and understanding about the work of God and tells us and reminds us that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And again, something good to keep in mind that although we live in the midst of this domain of darkness, God has transferred us from that into the kingdom of his beloved Son, where we live differently in this church than we do on the outside. We learned about his kingdom. We learned that we are knit together. We are like the sinews and ligaments that are in the body. Paul talks about that many times in his letters, but we are all part of one body. That we are alive in Christ. That we were dead at one time in our sins, but we are now alive. And Paul warns us not to be misled by false teachers. Just like way back when we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said the same thing. Don't be misled by those wolves that will come in among sheaves. And Paul tells us to put on the new self. And why does he ask us to do that? Because, or why does he command us to do that? Well, because when Christ appears again, we also will appear with him in glory. And how will that happen? That will happen us with the church, and not just this church, but the church universal. And it will happen in our homes, and it will happen in the world. And so we're getting to the point where we're still in the household, but we will get to the world and how that's going to look in the world. But Paul already has spoken about the relationships within the church, and we spoke about that several weeks ago, and he told us to put off those sins which defile ourselves, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And the reason? Because on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
He warns us that before we were new creations, we also walked in those sins. And we walked in the sins that destroyed our fellowship with other people, like we see in the world all around us from those that do not walk in newness of life. They engage in things which destroy fellowship, that destroy friendship, that destroy human beings. And we we need to put those away now, Paul tells us. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, coarse joking. Don't lie to one another, he tells us. And these sins are corrosive to any relationship, including those in the church and those at home. And so instead, Paul, in verses 12 through 16, tells us, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And then, after describing in general those things which the followers of Jesus Christ must do to live in peace and harmony in God's creation, he sums up for us the rule for all of our relationships in verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever relationship you are in, whatever job you have, whatever activity you are engaged in, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul and his sometimes stern commands to us about what we are to do to live within your kingdom. But we thank you for those, because without those instructions, we would not know. We would be lost in our sins. So we thank you for that. We ask you today, Lord, that you would open our hearts to your leading, to your word, that we might do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, today we're going to attempt to finish chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 1. And let's read that now. Starting at verse 20. Children. Okay, we've already had wives submit. Well, I'll start at 18, I guess. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And, and by the way, that is difficult, as I found out. Um, well, you know, it's funny how God convicts us of certain things where we think we're doing pretty well and then something happens and we're tempted to offer some helpful advice to our spouse. <laughs> you know, which, which I have to praise God, I did not do. Because I was tempted to, and as I was doing whatever I was doing, noticing this, I'm like, yeah, I really need to mention this. And then I thought, well, why? Why do I need to mention that? What's, what's my motivation? Is it really to be helpful? Yeah, not really, you know, and God convicted me of that, and I, and I praise God for that. But, you know, we always have to be careful about that in our relationship with our spouse, because um, we always really want to just help them out a little bit. <laughs> anyway, so verses um, 20 now. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. 
not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Well, all of this sounds great, and I dare say that everyone sitting here today would agree that they would more than anything else want to be able to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. But what does that really mean? Is it simply to close our prayers, in Jesus' name we pray? While there's nothing wrong with that, Paul is looking for a much more complete dedication to the name of Jesus here. In the Gospel of John, chapters 14, 15, and 16, Jesus talks about praying in his name. At 14, 13, and, and, and 14, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. At chapter 15, verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And in chapter 16, verses 23 and 24, he says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Well, Andrew Murray, in his book, With Christ in the School of Prayer, talks about the use of Jesus' name. And I think that we do not meditate sufficiently on the names of God or the name of Jesus. Eli preached on the names of God, the attributes of God. John did a devotional before our Christmas service about the names of Jesus Christ, but do we really think about what that means and how that relates to acting in the name of Jesus? Now, as Murray says, the name of a king, if you're thinking in earthly terms, includes his honor, his power, his kingdom, the symbol of his power. And so the name of Christ is the expression of all he has done, all that he is, and all that he lives to do as our mediator. That's what it means, the name of Christ. And so what does it then mean to do something in the name of another? It is to have the power and authority of that other person as his representative and substitute. A person will not give his name to be used without being assured that his honor and interest are as safe with that other person as it is with himself. So when Jesus gives us power over his name, and the free use of it with the assurance that whatever we ask in it will be given to us, he could not do this if he did not know he could trust us with his interests. A person who gives his name to another stands aside to let that other person act for him. He who takes the name of another gives up his own name as of no value. And that's worth meditating about. We see examples of this in the world. In business, for instance, business owner goes on vacation for a month, gives his office manager the general power to write checks and make orders in the name of the business. Okay? The manager does this not for himself, but only in the interest of the business. It is only because the owner trusts the manager that he gives him that power. Okay? We see this in the family as well. A child has his father's name, because he's been given life by the Father. 
Now, a child many times can be helped by others for the sake of the name of the father. Oh, you're Lyle's son or you're Jason's son or whatever. Yeah, sure. But that would not last long if the child was only using the name and didn't really have the father's character. The name and the character must be in harmony. And so it is with Jesus. Our power in using his name depends on the measure of our spiritual union with him. Galatians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as his beloved children. Now the union also can be a union of love. So Murray in his book uses the example of a bride whose life has been one of poverty, and she becomes married to a bridegroom of wealth. She gives up her own name to be called by his, and now she has the full right to use his name. She purchases in his name, and that name is never refused because of the name of the husband. And this is done because the bridegroom has chosen her for himself, counting on her to care for his interests. They are now one. The heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ, does the same thing for us, having found us in our poverty and married us to him so that we have full right to use those things that he wants us to use. He makes us one with himself to ask anything in his name, and it will be given. The name represents the person, and to ask in the name is to ask in full union of interest and life and love with Jesus as the one who lives in and for him. When the name of Jesus has become the power that rules our life, its power in prayer with God will be seen also. And so now, that last verse that we read two weeks ago, chapter 3, verse 17, becomes meaningful because it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, as one with Jesus, so that people cannot tell the difference in interest between Jesus Christ and you. That's a tall order. But luckily, we have the spirit of Jesus Christ living in us to help us do that. And when we fail, he picks us up and allows us to try it again. And so having established this foundation of the relationship between us and Jesus Christ, Paul then goes into the specific relationships in the household. So if we're we're, we're acting in the name of Jesus Christ, here's how you do it with a husband and wife. And now he's talking about the other relationships in the household. And as we discussed last week, the household is the basic building block of all society and of all of mankind, really. People who are not godly in their home lives are not going to be godly in the church, and they're not going to be godly in the culture around them. They will not be light and life to the world around them, and because the household is the foundation of society, through the Christian household, done in accordance with Jesus Christ's name, we will change the world. The world will change, one person at a time. Well, last week we discussed this in relation to husbands and wives. This week we'll talk about children and parents. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Well, these verses have their parallel in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, which provides children, and again, Paul fleshes it out more in Ephesians, And as you notice, Paul used a lot of ink there for masters and slaves, whereas in Ephesians he uses way more ink for husbands and wives and family relationships. And part of that is because 
the letter was sent back with Onesimus and those guys, and there was a slave-master relationship. If you look at the book of Philemon, that was a letter that came back at the same time. All that was going on. And so Paul found it necessary to talk more about this relationship here. But now we're talking about children and parents. And Ephesians says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, this relationship between parents and children cannot be right unless the relationship between husband and wife is right. Because you can't do one without the other. Significantly, though, in in this culture back here, children were usually ignored. They were non-people. But in Paul's churches, children are both present and instructed to obey. He gives them instructions. He gives them dignity. He gives them honor. He gives them personhood. The child's obedience is really the child's response to doing all the name of Christ, like he talks about before at verse 17. And to love in verse 14, because remember, love ties it all together, and to live a Christ-like existence. It is the child's discipleship, if you will, because disciple or discipline does not mean punishment. It means teaching and learning and coming alongside and helping that person to grow up. If the child is raised in this manner to be obedient, to please the Lord, this will lead in later life to caring for aging parents, which is another one of God's instructions. Mark 7, 9 through 13, describes the situation where the child does not care for the parents, saying instead that the resources, the money that he has, he's dedicated to the temple, to be given to the temple, and he's not able to use it to raise up his parents and to take care of his parents. And it shows selfishness and a lack of honor and a lack of pleasing the Lord, and that's what Jesus said. 1 Timothy 5, 4 says, But if a widow has children or grandchildren... Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And so when we do this right, when we have the right relationships, then it does result caring for aging parents. And boy, wouldn't that resolve a lot of problems in our culture today if we actually took that seriously? But why are the children to obey? Well, as it says in Ephesians, this is one of the Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and mother. But most importantly, though, since God considers the heart and not the legalistic obedience to commands, children are to obey their parents because it pleases the Lord. It makes the Lord happy when that happens. And in light of what we have been saying about husbands and wives and the other relationships of life in this chapter, Paul's instruction to obey the parents in everything assumes the goodness of the parents. We're not talking about kids having to obey bad orders, uh, being um, abused or anything like that, it assumes that there is a goodness of the parents which results from his instructions, and it assumes that the parents are imparting wisdom in a Christian manner to form a character shaped by love, holiness, peace, and justice. And again, if the husband-wife relationship is not proper, neither can the parent-child relationship be proper. Because that's how kids learn a lot of this stuff. You know? I mean, we all know that daughters will usually marry someone like their dad and sons will marry someone like their mom. And they're going to pattern their relationships and life over what they've seen for all those years. 
you know, if it's a poor relationship, it's going to result in another poor relationship. But if it's a godly relationship, it's going to result in another godly relationship. And this is the tragedy of the culture today, isn't it? Where such a large percentage of children are being raised by single moms or single dads. How can they learn the wisdom and character that they need to have that God desires without those relationships? What are we doing as Christ's church to remedy that in the culture around us? Do we foster? Do we adopt? Do we advocate for these children? Or do we simply put them out of our minds and say, well, someone else is taking care of that. There's a social program for that. There's a charity for that. But this is one of the things that Paul is talking about. He doesn't talk about social programs, but he talks about this relationship which is critical, critical to Christ's kingdom. Well, significant also is the fact that the command to children would have also included slave children. Now, remember that Paul previously tore down the barrier between slave and free. A slave child who would have been in the congregation would have heard this instruction to obey parents and to not be treated poorly in a way that made him an equal with the children of free parents. Because there's no special instruction, it's just children. And we have Christ now again in his church bringing forward this equality which applies to everybody, everybody in the church. And as N.T. Wright points out, in a couple of crisp sentences there, Paul has said in essence what thousands of books on the upbringing of children have struggled to express. Sometimes verse 20, which is obey your parents, has been overemphasized, and verse 21 has been forgotten, which is fathers do not provoke your children, in the zeal of parents not to spare the rod and spoil the child. Sometimes verse 21 has been overstressed, and the rights of the individual child have been allowed to range free, which trample the rights of the family, friends, neighbors, and anyone else in the way. For fear, yes, this young life be crushed or twisted or repressed. Okay, Both sides are clearly necessary. Children need discipline, and so do parents. So just like in the relationship between husbands and wives, Note there is not any mention of authority as a reason for obedience or submission. Instead, love and relationship with the Lord Jesus become the motivation of living a life which is pleasing to him. The father's relationship to his children, and this would apply to mothers as well, is not one of imposing authority, but of nurturing love. A father's love for a child transforms his authority from power to nurture When the father does what Paul instructs, do not provoke, do not embitter. And this embitter or provoked is used by Paul in a bad sense. He refers to a constant nagging or belittling of the child or the refusal to allow children to be people in their own right. In Deuteronomy 21.20, which, by the way, as a homeschooling parent, is a famous section that we rely upon because it allows for disobedient children to be stoned by the community... So we haul that one out every now and then to, to, to threaten our children. But, but what, it, what it says, though, in, in, in the appropriate section, it says, that The parents shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious, which is the same term that Paul uses here. So he takes it from, from Deuteronomy. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then if the child won't 
repent, then he's taken out and he's stoned. Paul is here exhorting fathers in this section here to raise their children in such a way that they do their utmost to avoid provoking this kind of rebellious attitude in a child. Now we all know that human beings are rebellious because of their sinful nature, but there are many things that we can do to make that worse. And so Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't provoke them. Don't irritate them, you know. Um, and we all know how that works. We do that with our spouses, our kids, whatever, because we know just the right thing to say. You know, it's that little, you know. So this was clearly an important consideration 2,000 years ago in the family, and it's no less important today. It's something that we need to keep in mind. And significantly, though, the Torah, or the law, told, not only told children that they must honor their parents, but it also told parents that they must teach their children. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which is the Shema, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's what we're supposed to do with our children. Now, you know, I used to be tempted to say, well, I did the best I could. Well, you know what? I did not do the best I could. I never have done the best that I could. I did the best that I wanted to do. You know, but that's not what God calls us to. He says, keep trying, because you need to diligently do this with your children. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Father, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So Paul's instructions to fathers and parents in general was to nurture children into the ways of the Christian faith. That's what you're teaching your children about. This is clear in Ephesians and in Colossians. And so what we see, therefore, is a vital connection between the home and the church. It has been said that the Christian church is only one generation away from extinction. And the responsibility to prevent that from happening rests with Christian parents. So you raise children in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ would do it. Nurture, love, discipline. Children, there are some here. Mine's here, look at that. Children, your relationship with your parents should be in the name of the Lord Jesus. Obey, love, submit to discipline and learning. Recall the words about Jesus. Remember in Luke 2.51, when his parents had found him in the temple when he was 12 years old and they brought him home and it says, he, was, he went back with them and he was submissive to his parents. This is the God of the universe being submissive to his parents. That's what it means to act in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now Paul moves from the actual immediate family to this final relationship within Christian and Roman households of the day, masters and slaves. Well, this is a difficult issue for many people when they read the Bible. Not the least of which is because the church in this country... Many people use these New Testament provisions about slavery to justify this heinous practice for many years. And it is true that the New Testament acknowledges slavery as a social reality. But Paul points out that the gospel of Jesus Christ will bring an end to that institution. One of my favorite summations of the gospel 
is through Jesus Christ, God is restoring everything that sin ruined. Everything. The good news of the gospel tears down barriers between slave and free, and living in accordance with the gospel eliminates those distinctions. Now, slavery at that time was universally accepted in the ancient world, and it was considered absolutely indispensable to civilized society. More than half of the citizens or the people in the cities of the Roman world were slaves. And this was the status, slavery was the status of the majority of so-called professional people like teachers, doctors, as well as servants, craftsmen. They were all slaves. Slaves were people with no rights. They were mere property existing only for the comfort, convenience, and pleasure of their owners. Now it's important to remember as we read the New Testament that the apostles were not social reformers. They were heralds of the good news of the salvation of Jesus Christ. That is what they were charged to do, was to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church was a very small minority in the Roman world, and there was no hope that the church as a body was going to influence Roman policies, social policies. But the apostles did not condone slavery. Instead, they announced the very principles that will ultimately destroy the institution of slavery and prejudice for all time. For all time. Paul writes in Colossians, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Well, again, Ephesians has a parallel passage and reads, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, or is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Well, I noticed that some of the newer translations of the Bible use the word bond servant instead of slave, and while this is technically correct, I believe that it tends to soften the blow of the institution of slavery as it existed back then. Slavery is slavery, no matter what you call it. It means the ownership of another human being and the lack of freedom and rights of that person. It also diminishes the humanity of those who own slaves. And while the implications of Paul's teaching here apply to our modern employment relationships, we must not make an attempt to assume that the two are the same or even remotely similar, because they're really not. Our modern employment relationships carry with it many, many rights, legal rights, other contractual rights, whereas slavery had no rights. There were no rights whatsoever. But some of the principles are applicable. For instance, the reality in slavery is that male slaves who were fathers were not legally considered fathers. They were not the fathers of their kids. Male slaves did not have any rights to inheritances. They were essentially excluded from manhood because that's what made a man back in that culture was that you had children and you got an inheritance. They remained perpetual children in the eyes of the law. Slaves were owned 
They were abused, they could be sold, they could be used for sex, and they had little, if any, recourse to justice. So when this letter was read within the church, along with the letter to Philemon, the slaves in the congregation, because remember, they're slaves in the congregation, would have examined every word and would have known the implication of these words for how Christian believers were to treat them in a Christian household. Paul radicalized household relationships between slaves and masters. Their relationship was no longer grounded in the Roman Empire system of status and power or in any kind of human system, but in one's relationship to the Lord. Now, the New Testament acknowledges slavery as a social reality, but it seeks to instruct those Christians who are in that system to behave in a godly manner. And that would bring about real institutional change. Christians, with their lack of status and their persecuted status, would have lacked any resources whatsoever to bring about political change. No one would have listened to them. But through Jesus Christ, God restores everything that sin ruined. And he would and he will restore the relationship between slave and free so that all men are created equal. And we see in a very imperfect way how that works out in our country where it's in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, which is the first time that was said in a a governmental document. And although we stumble and fall, that's what we're aiming for. But that's what Jesus said, that's what Paul said, that all men are equal. So Paul instructs slaves to obey their earthly masters in everything, not only when the master's eye is upon them to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And this principle applies today as well in the employment situation. Uh, N.T. Wright says that the Christian worker must be a whole person, totally given to the task at hand, not merely doing the minimum required to avoid rebuke with a show of effort only when one is being observed. And we we know plenty of people that do that in the workplace. That attitude shows no reverence for the Lord, who has called all his people to full, single-hearted human living. Even if they are treated like animals or worse, slaves are still to regard themselves as fully human beings. Working for the Lord, in whose image we are created, reminds us that we are fully human beings regardless of our station in life. And if you think about that, it's absolutely true. Instead of thinking, I'm working for this person or that person or back then, slaves, whatever, we are created in the image of God. We are a full, complete human being regardless of what status we have in life. And that's what gives us joy. That's what makes us one with Jesus Christ. And, and so what Paul says that in, in addition to just pleasing the Lord, he says, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance as your, as your reward, you're serving the Lord Christ. Well, this would have been stunning in that day to the slaves especially, but also to the masters because slaves could never get an inheritance. They were not entitled to it. They were barred from inheritance. But Paul is promising them an inheritance. You are getting something in this life with Jesus Christ that you would never get in any other way. And he's telling them, you are not serving your masters. You are serving the Lord Christ. And that would have been provocative for the slaves in the congregation because since their first order was to serve Christ, it put their masters in an inferior position to Christ. 
how radical that is and how that changed things within the Roman Empire and how that would change things throughout our culture. And Paul fleshes that out, what it looks like in his letter to Philemon. And I would recommend that you read that letter this week. It's one page uh, in light of what we're talking about today because he tells both slave and slave owner how to act in the Lord. And if they act that way, it's not a slave relationship at all anymore. And that's what, that's what Jesus is saying when we tear down these barriers. And it's not just slaves and free. It's all the different barriers that we face in our lives and in our culture. Well, but what if the slave doesn't obey? Well, I follow Jesus, so I don't have to obey you. Well, Paul says in verse 25, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Well, the warning is that the Lord will discipline without partiality in cases of disobedience. In Philemon, the letter of Philemon, Paul acknowledges that the slave Onesimus was responsible to repay Philemon. He had stolen money or had stolen something, and he says, yeah, he did wrong. He needs to pay for that. He needs to pay that back. And Paul agreed to do it on behalf of Onesimus, kind of acting as Jesus would have done paying our debt, but the Christian servant may not presume on his Christianity to justify disobedience. Even if we are God's children, we will reap what we sow because God is impartial. If we do wrong, we're going to have to pay the price for that. But then Paul finally charges at at 4.1, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Well, God will judge masters who mistreat their slaves as he will slaves who fail to serve their masters. It goes both ways. They are spiritually equal in Christ. Masters must treat their Christian servants as brothers in Christ and act toward them with all the virtues which we've been speaking about in the last few weeks. They should treat their slaves or today their employees like they want the Lord Jesus to treat them. It's the golden rule for slaves, basically. In contrast with Aristotle and the predominant thought of the day, slaves were property. They did not deserve justice. They had no right to justice. Paul instructs masters and gives them the burden that they be just in their treatment of slaves. Wow. Some versions of the Bible say, treat your slaves justly and fairly. Some command masters to provide your slaves what is right and fair. But both have in mind the intentional establishment of fair and just conditions, which again is not what slavery is all about, and which is not what a lot of employment situations are about. But this would include proper financial compensation, even-handedness for work done, and it would prohibit exploitation of slaves, whether financially, verbally, or sexually. The masters are to take responsibility for establishing this type of family relationship with their slaves or their servants. Now, how this was accomplished, or even if it was accomplished, is not set forth in the New Testament. But clearly, Paul and Jesus Christ are teaching a radical means of eliminating the institution of slavery here. These instructions would preserve the family structure of slaves as well, rather than allowing masters to sell off children or husbands or wives to others for their own personal profit. So Paul is urging slave owners to provide their slaves what brothers and sisters ought to receive. Paul is establishing something more than equality in mere physical needs. He's establishing an equality of everyone before God and Christ. And going back to 3.11, to see those of different social classes as equals, as brothers and sisters in Christ, is to establish an entirely new order. 
And it's an entirely new order in the culture in which we live as well. And that order would witness against the Roman Empire system of exploitation and slavery because people would look at the church and say, wait a minute, this is different. How can this possibly work out? The use of the words just and fair establish a fellowship in the churches that open the door for a new way of life, and not only in the household and in the church, but in the culture at large. Through obedience of followers of Christ to these commands, slavery melts away in the church, or it should. Now, we know that it didn't, but we have to think whether or not people were really following, were really acting in the name of Jesus Christ when it did not. These rules create true freedom and will result in the gospel changing the world. Paul took the social structure as he found it and showed how the gospel would change the church. God's kingdom into its very opposite. Through Jesus Christ, God is restoring everything that sin ruined. And that's a lesson for us today. So Paul commands in 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now recall that these rules here in Colossians are for believers. They're for the church. So how does widespread social change come about? Well, when a person becomes a new creation in Christ Jesus, that's when things start to change. Hearts must be changed by God. Sinful man and culture will not, cannot be forced to be fair and just, and cannot be forced to be full of love for fellow man by laws or rules or principles or practices. It's foolishness to them. So it puts them at a disadvantage. Like the apostles, we in the church must be heralds of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we talked about on Christmas Eve from Isaiah 52.7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. How beautiful are those feet? Do we have those beautiful feet? Are we heralds of good news? And if you're here today, hearing for the first time the good news of salvation and this gospel and new birth through faith in Christ Jesus, or if you've heard it before, but God is moving your heart today to believe it, then acknowledge your sins to God. Confess them, repent of them, accept the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life by believing in your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross was buried, defeated sin and death by his resurrection from the grave, and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you will be saved. Brothers and sisters, let us do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, in our inner selves, in our homes, in our church, in all our relationships, and let us give thanks to God the Father through him. I ask you, in light of everything going on around us, which is more valuable? watching the news and wringing our hands about the collapse of our culture and having animated discussions about this with our friends or telling people the good news that through Jesus, God is restoring everything that sin ruined and building God's kingdom by building up the church, which will have more influence on those around us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You know that you have called us to be witnesses to the world, to be the messengers of good news, those with beautiful feet. We pray that you would show us the way to share with those around us how God is restoring everything 
that sin ruined through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would have us show to those around us our relationships and that we are doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.